From MPB Think Radio, this is Deep South Dining, the show all about the culture of Southern flavor and those that love to stir the pot. Hi, I'm Java Chapman, and today we're going to be sharing a conversation with the incredible Tony Tipton Martin. In late 2023, she released her latest cookbook, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, Cocktails from Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. Tony joined Malcolm White, Carol Palmer, and myself for a conversation about this new cookbook and her award-winning work on the history of African-Americans in the culinary arts. Now, we won't be taking your phone calls today, but as always, we want to know what's happening in your kitchen. So send us an email to food at mpbonline.org or send us a message through the Talk to Us feature inside the MPB public media app. This is MPB Think Radio. More Deep South Dining after the break. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. You're listening to Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman. And now let's turn to our conversation with Tony Tipton Martin about her latest cookbook, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, Cocktails from Two Centuries, of African-American cookbooks. So before we launch, we are launched, but but thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners, um, you know, we are a statewide public radio station, and we, uh, we are also broadcast and picked up in several neighboring states. So we, we have quite an interesting uh, listenership. But for our listeners, I want to make sure everybody understands uh, who you are. Uh, you're not only a uh, a journalist, but you're an award-winning author, food journalist, culinary historian. I believe you've won at least two James Beards for your work, if I'm correct about that, for the Jemima Code and for Jubilee. And you have your new product is called Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, uh, which is a true celebration of resilience, creativity, and flavors that define American African-American cuisine. And we are, as I said, delighted to have you. And for those who aren't familiar, you are a food writer uh, for the L.A. Times, first African-American editor of a food section of a major newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. So I was curious about your path, your upbringing, your early days, and how you uh, came to be the, this person that we so admire. Uh, well, thank you for that question. That's such a long journey. I'll try to uh, be as brief as possible. Um, I studied journalism in high school uh, and um, majored in French. I wanted to uh, spend the rest of my life um, only speaking French, <laughs> possibly uh, abroad. And um, when I wasn't able to work that out, journalism um, 
became more of a natural uh, connection for me um, in college because I had that experience as a high schooler. Mm. Um, and what I was, uh, what I decided to pursue was the hard news part of the daily paper. I wanted to tell factual stories. I was not that interested in features writing um, or um, <clears throat> softer narratives. We used to call it the soft side of the paper back then. Um, I really wanted to be in, in news. And I had a professor who suggested that if I started on the feature side of the paper, uh, I might be able to migrate over to hard news once I had you know, paid my dues and shown my chops. And you could still do that back then. You didn't have to quite be a copy boy or run and get people's coffee, but you did have to you know, earn your way. And um, ultimately, that led me into the food section at the LA Times, and it was there that I encountered my first, um, the first book, and that ultimately became part of my now um, rare African American um, cookbook collection. Now, you were born and raised in Los Angeles, but uh, I believe you have some Southern roots. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your family that goes back uh, to Texas, Louisiana, and I believe even Mississippi. Well, there is uh, very um, little uh, information. Um, as I say at the introduction to the Jemima Code, my mother left skid marks when <laughs> she left the South and uh, did not want to have any further conversation about what their experiences were um, in the South. So frankly, this pursuit of mine has come as quite a surprise. Um, growing up as I did at the beach in Los Angeles. Um, uh, but from what I have been able to cobble together from the handful of relatives that are left, um, we have connections to Paris, Texas. Um, we have ancestry in uh, outside of Shreveport in Louisiana. And what was the most interesting to me was to have um, family that was part of the founding of um, a black town. And that was really um, uh, interesting to me because I'd grown up with this uncle named Nicodemus and didn't make the, well, like, why would I as a kid make the connection to Nicodemus, Kansas? But um, my, uh, on my father's side of the family, there is um, lineage that traces to the founding of that town. So, so um, there was, there's a lot more Southernness than I knew uh, when I started this project. And certainly um, it was completely unknown to me when I was involved with the Southern Food Waste Alliance, which is part of my interest in and love of um, the friends and family that I made at SFA. Regarding the SFA, you served for a while on the board and also as president of the organization, right? Yes, I was the founding, uh, I was part of the founding group of 50 um, that John Edgerton uh, invited to a conversation in Birmingham at Southern Living. Um, and from that, a steering committee of 13 uh, we just kept, they just kept whittling the group down until it was a manageable group to really help uh, frame the direction that the group would go and what its um, objectives were. And I continued to be part of that group until, um, until it was time to elect leadership. And there I was uh, an outsider um, 
I was one of the few that was not born and raised or had any direct connection to the South. And it seemed peculiar to me that um, they would actually want me to be president. Um, but over time, I learned that, um, you know, there is that my biscuits are better than your biscuits. It's not really barbecue <laughs> unless it's from here. Like there's all that regional uh, personality that happens within the boundaries of the South. And I was actually um, outside of that. So it made perfect sense for me to be uh, in leadership at the founding of the thing. So uh, Leah Chase was was asked to um, stand as president and she, but uh, on the condition, she she agreed on the condition that I would do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> Leah is a very so smart business person. <laughs> to the founding of SFA and its first president, it will say Leah Chase. And it, parenthetically, it will say that I was the working, first working <laughs> president. We shared that role. Well, we are very grateful for the work of the founding group and the decisions that you made back then. And I know John Edgerton was such a huge part of the philosophy behind it. Uh, and it has served all of us well through the years. I, I would agree. Uh, you know, John Edgerton uh, was very special to me and wrote the foreword uh, with a great deal of reluctance um, to the Jemima Code, but he had been there with me all along the way and uh, was for the reason that I was invited to this group in the first place. Hmm. Um, and he, even then, he the reason he wanted a full group of people to uh, be part of the leadership was so that there wasn't um, a single voice as there had been for so many generations driving all of the history and the records regarding um, the food, the foodways of the South. Uh, the mission and vision became um, to, you know, the purpose was to intentionally uh, celebrate and uncover the diversity of the American South as related to food. And, so he never wanted to be the out front person, not with my work and not with SFA, but we all knew that he was the patriarch of the thing, even though patriarchy was something he didn't really like much. And the group really broke through the cliche of Southern food waste from the very first, just the, you know, the fried chicken and biscuits and blah, 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 and expanded our thinking about who, who participated, who owned it, who was doing the work. Um, quite, a, quite a big challenge. Yeah. Uh, my next question is, you know, throughout your illustrious career, you've, you've done it all. You've, you've been there and done it. I was wondering if anything recently or when is the last time something really surprised you, a cookbook or a recipe or a food fact or some sort of history, culinary history that you've come across as you could share? Well, I can tell you that this book, the creation of this book was rooted in surprise. Um, as you mentioned, SFA um, was so instrumental in changing the way that lots of people thought about uh, the foodways of the South. And I definitely wanted to tell that new story to a larger audience and uh, decided that collecting cookbooks would be a way for me to find first-person voices um, to tell those stories because I didn't have direct connection 
to people in the South. And so uh, in the surveying of those books and the researching of them and just the reading them and becoming more and more familiar with them, I noticed a gap when it came to uh, the conversation of alcoholic beverages and mm-hmm. that our publishing of recipes based in spirits ends in the late 1940s and doesn't, <laughs> excuse me, pick up again until the, what I call the soul food era or the late 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. And that was a, quite um, a curiosity to me. And so it sent me back into the research phase, uh, pouring over American history books of all kinds and all kinds of resources looking for an answer um, as to why people who had been um, clearly proud of their intellectual property and their craftsmanship uh, behind the bar suddenly stopped talking about it. So I have a, I have a major cookbook collection, um, as well as the um, historical references that I began to collect um, when I started this work, um, because it predated the internet. Mm. And people think today, oh, it's just so easy to find all of this information. You only have to hear the name of one of these um, important historical figures once, and you can Google them, and mostly you can find information. But back then, uh, that wasn't true. You had to travel to special collections. You had to visit the Library of Congress. You might have needed to go to historical um, societies in particular communities um, in pursuit of records and all kinds of ways of tracking down the names that were sprinkled uh, here and there throughout history. Tell us about the the cookbook from 1827, uh, I think it was. Yes, that is the oldest book in the collection. Um, uh, It was published by Robert Roberts, and he was the um, butler in the governor's mansion in Massachusetts. And for many, many generations, that book was known. It was even published as a facsimile. But um, it wasn't really respected as a recipe book because there's a mixture of household maintenance recipes, things like how to clean flies from glass, how to uh, clean out the fireplace, the best way to wash one's feet. Like there are lots of (laughs) um, amazing, amazing Uh, instructions in this book. And there are also recipes in there, and many of them, more so than uh, any other food category, um, there are quite a number of beverages in that book. Um, And so um, it it wasn't initially considered uh, a recipe book in the truest sense of a food, a cooking book. Do you know the exact number in this collection, or do you have an approximation? Uh, well, I keep an inventory, um, so I know uh, that there are at least 450 of them uh, <clears throat> right now, and the pub dates end generally in the mid-2000s. Mm. So I have uh, I used the University of Alabama's bibliography as my shopping list to um, obtain these books, and their list has 450 on it as well. So um, I'm 
I'm, there, there's lots, lots more of them. It's just that I um, have had other pursuits, and it's obviously an expensive endeavor to get all, uh, obtain all of the modern books. So, does this um, collection include your beverage books, or is that a separate collection? No, it does include the beverage books. And this, when I say 450, I'm referring specifically to the African American books that date back to 1827. Um, they are the rarest um, of the group, and, but then I have, as every food editor. Uh, You're listening I, to Deep South Dining. I'm Java Chapman. Now let's take a pause of the conversation as our guest today is Tony Tipton Martin. In late 2023, she released her latest book, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice Cocktails from Two Centuries of African American Cookbooks. We'll have more with her, Malcolm White, Carol Palmer, and myself after the break. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman, and now let's return to our conversation with Tony Tipton Martin about her latest cookbook, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice Cocktails from Two Centuries of African American Cookbooks. Now, one thing I read uh, about about the author in your book is is that you are now the editor in chief of Cook's Country Magazine. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Cook's Country and that body of work. Uh, yes, I love to do that um, because sometimes it's a little confusing to people how I could have gone from uh, work that is primarily devoted to the promotion of um, African American foodways and legacy to a place that has been primarily focused on rigorous recipe testing um, within a test kitchen, which means that the identity of its recipes are um, uh, not as essential as a part of the story because the recipes come into the test kitchen and they're reevaluated. And uh, the reason I chose to um, take on this role at Cook's Country was uh, it gave me the opportunity to return to my previous desire to amplify the food stories of everyone in America. So I took the job at the Plain Dealer because I wanted to um, dig deeper into that community there, which has um, a hugely diverse population of Eastern Europeans, African-Americans, Jewish people. Like there's a big uh, community of different food waste in Cleveland. And I thought that was gonna be a great way for me to um, explore uh, my storytelling uh, using recipes as a way to um, tear down some of the bridges, the build bridges between us as community and tear down the stereotypes of one another that we harbor. Um, and so what I'm doing now at Cook's Country returns to that, but it also has strands of the work that I do at, in my own private work 
um, in that now my team, uh, I have a staff of test cooks and um, editors and production, television production people, and we're we are identifying our sources. We are now bringing more journalistic um, technique into the pages and the television show of America's Test Kitchen, thus Cook's Country. And one of the first ways you will see that um, in the magazine is um, we now have a photograph of an American cook on the very last page. And there's not always a story about him. There's not necessarily a recipe. There's no link always um, to learn more. They're just people that are uh, important uh, behind. They're the pe important people behind the foods that we love in America. And so we that was the first change that I made to the magazine. And then uh, on the television show, we did something different. Um, the way that they cook country and America's Test Kitchen TV shows on PBS work is there as a test cook and a host and they're engaged in conversation while preparing a recipe and in between there are little segments about um, failed food products they may talk about equipment um, but we inserted another segment and it is a segment that uh, we call in the library and it features me in a, a library set that was built for me. And I give the background behind the recipe that was tested that day on TV. And so we are really enjoying the ability to tell people the kinds of surprising tidbits um, that exist be behind things like green goddess dressing, right? It's, it's, um, right. These are f often familiar foods um, and dishes that we uh, don't know that there's a story behind. I love seeing you on the television uh, part of your Cook's Country experience. And, and I think it's so unusual. You've been from, you know, behind the desk, the person way behind the story, to, you know, being front and center and wonder how that changed, you know, the arc of your career to go from being the writer to the person on camera? That's such a good question, especially today when journalists are grouped into the category of media, uh, because I think that's part of what is creating so much division uh, for us as a country, because we have lost the understanding that journalists are objective and we're not trying to be part of the story. Um, and it's been awkward, to say the least, for me to um, become a, a, in some way a part of the story. But what I like is that I'm I'm there and I'm telling you the story. Just you just happen to be able to see my face in the same way there was a byline. But I'm trying desperately not to be a part of that story because it's very very important to me to maintain that autonomy but i will tell you this we had a really fun situation on set this past um two months ago when we were filming for the next season i have this habit i shouldn't confess it because now your viewer your, your uh, audience will be looking for this flaw but i when i'm thinking i kind of look around and you know i'm supposed to keep my eyes focused on the camera 
And so I turned away to do something. And when I turned back, the producer had um, positioned a picture of my dog on the primary camera. <laughs> it was <laughs> such a treat and so delightful that, you know, they didn't say someone get that woman and make her settle down. <laughs> um, but they, they were very generous and just said, well, wonder if seeing Tino there will work. And they said that I was attentive and focused and spoke directly to the camera the entire rest of the filming. They've so, got your number. <laughs> they, so they know how to work that with out. you. <laughs> that little puppy is my heart. So it was great. Uh, I loved reading that your son, Brandon, is a classically trained bartender. And what a great help what a coincidence <laughs> that, that you had Brandon to help work you through this absolutely um I also mentioned that you know it was not a he um I didn't drink a lot um I obviously became a bourbon fancier once I started hanging out with my friends and our friends at SFA <laughs> uh and Edgerton you know they and Ronnie Lundy they taught me how to drink bourbon the proper way. Uh, but I generally just liked a really nice glass of red wine or um, bubbles, you know, champagne or something like that. But mixed drinks were not, I wasn't really fond of them, um, mostly because I'm a nutrition writer and I was, you know, bugged a little bit by the amount of sugar. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but Brandon, um, when he graduated from while he was in his college years, someone suggested that, you know, working in a restaurant was an amazing experience for young people because they have to get their courage up. They have to be able to speak to people at the side of the table as servers. Like there's all these social skills that one develops while working in a restaurant. And so uh, he came home and said that uh, he was going to take a job at Friday's which he did, and they have a pretty substantial, uh, they did anyway back then, um, a training program. So he learned all of the essentials of mixology um, and even competed a couple times. And so when this idea came up, I thought, well, of course, he's going to be able to help talk me through all of the things that I don't know. Plus, I'm uh, I am gathering these recipes from my collection only. Uh, so my recipe storytelling is limited to whatever stories I can find in my cookbook collection. And anything that I tell you uh, beyond that is just for context. Uh, but I'm not here to be the expert on the best bourbons. I can't speak to you about cognac history. Like I leave all of that uh, to people that have much more expertise than I in that area which meant that I'd get these books and review them. And as we all know, those, the elders say things like bake a cake in the usual way or, <laughs> you know, shake until cold, right. you know, and I was left with a lot of wiggle room to try to interpret what they meant. So he was able to give me some great context for those recipes and to develop some tasting notes, which was great. 
Now, Ms. Martin, this is uh, producer Java, and I think I told you off of the air, I really appreciate you for being here today. But I do want to say thank you for, in this new book, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, you put some contemporary people next to some really legendary names. You know, not many cookbooks can feature Snoop Dogg, Tupac, T-Pain, along with people like Tom Bullock and uh, Julian Anderson, who I learned about from you know, um, the words in your book. So talk about that wide range of information that you cover in the books. And for people who may not be familiar, give them a little bit about Tom Bullock and uh, Julian Anderson real briefly. Well, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so being a good journalist, um, I always have to root my stories in fact. And that means that um, the Jemima Code was the beginning of, finding the facts that I could in cookbooks. So they are the um, the heirloom or the artifact that I use as the basis from which everything else springs. Uh, when I got to Jubilee, I realized that these recipe books had a story to tell, but the recipes that I was encountering did not necessarily reflect modern expectations for what it means to cook black food meaning most of the storytelling that we hear about black cooking has to do with soul food. And keep in mind that we're talking about this today, but, and my work is, you know, 10 years old uh, in this first, uh, the first introductions of this discussion, that there were two pathways to African-American food. The, the, the um, enslaved who were um, surviving, who were making do with, kitchen house leavings with whatever they could find in their natural environment. And those foods of the agricultural South migrate out and into the North and West, and they do become what is known as soul food. But that story doesn't, our story doesn't end there. And I discovered another artifact that helped me anchor the second group, which was the people who had served in professional capacities. And that professionalism can also be traced all the way into the plantation and colonial kitchen, meaning that people who had craftsmanship, who were trained by others, those are considered professional skills that we have just not given respect or honor to African-Americans for possessing. And I discovered that um, lineage through a, a recipe book proposal that was written in the 30s by a man named Arturo Schomburg, who the uh, New York Public Library named its Harlem uh, library after. Um, and he was an independent observer who decided that in his understanding, there were two ways to look at African-American foodways, the professional class and the, the agricultural group. So I applied that very same thought when I started looking for artifacts regarding beverage makers. And what I discovered in my collection was a recipe book by a man named Tom Bullock, who is apparently the godfather of mixology as far as African-Americans um, are concerned. He published his recipe book in 1917. And it is not a book that tries to claim that he made anything first, or even better, what he's doing is identifying his intellectual property and stating on the record, these are the recipes that he makes in the country club 
where he works in St. Louis. And two years later, another gentleman named Julian Anderson comes along with a very similar project, uh, Julian's Recipes. And it is also an A to Z compendium of uh, all kinds of cocktails um, and craft drinks um, that he makes. And lastly, what was the most delightful then is I trace modern recipes through cookbooks uh, back to these artifacts to see which recipes still persist today. And as you mentioned, Snoop Dogg has a recipe book. T-Pain has a recipe book. And of course, we know that Tupac and lots of other hip hop stars uh, have a great affection for alcoholic beverages. And I didn't want to just get stuck in the, you know, blame it on the alcohol philosophy. I really wanted to tie it, tie the modern drink canon back into the past. And it was really wonderful to see things like Snoop's Gin and Juice have references way back in 1917 that uh, I'm not even sure that he or T-Pain and their mixology collaborators were aware of um, this long legacy of many drinks that persist today. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And like you said, tying the past to the modern. And um, another question I have for you is, you know, with your books, Jamamako, Jubilee, and now Juke Joint Jazz Clubs and Juice, you know, you're uncovering these things about African-Americans in the culinary space. And, you know, you also have shows now like High on the Hog, which you are featured on, and others. Um, I just want to know from your perspective, why do you think all this information is now being shared? Because, you know, like you said, these books were being published in the 20s and 30s, 1800s, but now it's kind of coming to the forefront um, through people such as yourself. Uh, well, you know, the thing, the, the Internet was the great democratizer. Uh, all of a sudden, people who had no voice and were barred from publishing, from starting cottage food industry businesses, uh, people suddenly had an audience, and I was one of them. Um, all of those years that I was um, involved with Southern Foodways Alliance, I had this kernel of an idea that I wanted to change the narrative about African-American cooks, especially. Um, so I was less interested in the food waste because there was some food waste studies happening, but no one was talking about the cooks, no one. And um, what I did was become educated. Basically, I went back to school uh, and became a self-taught PhD. And I got myself a little borrow, courtesy borrower's card from the University of Texas in Austin. And every couple of weeks I would get another stack of history books. So I would start with American history and then I would go through that bibliography and find more references to the next generation of books. And I did that for Southern studies. I did it for women and gender studies. I did it for African-American history. Then I moved on to reading the slave narratives at the Library of Congress so that I could hear the actual voices of the people. And it was then that I realized that what the people were saying did not line up naturally with what the record keepers had said. So whether they were historians or plantation owners in their journals or farm directories or poetry or 
music lyrics or films in Hollywood, like no matter where I looked, black people were marginalized. And I think what's unique about my work and why it succeeds as it does is because I am a journalist and I look at the content not with a scholar's view. Uh, because scholars tend to go very deep on one subject, but journalists are generalists, and we we can cover a lot of things uh, on a maybe on a more superficial level. So I would just take one person's name, like Samuel Frances, who was a tavern owner in the late 1800s in New York City, and I kept seeing his name pop up, but there wasn't anything really tied to him. Just there was this guy, Sam Frances, Black Sam. Someplace they'd call him Black Sam. Someplace they'd say he was a mulatto and so he wasn't really Black, he was passing. Some said these recipes weren't really legitimate because people were not cooking the food for other Black people, they were cooking it in service to white people. So there have been oodles <laughs> of rationales given for not just doing what I did, which was to draw a through line through across all disciplines to see what story I could build about Black Sam if I added together the various things that were said about him and others. And that is what makes my work unique. And it's so much easier for the next generation to do that now because they have the internet and so many resources, including the uh, slave narratives uh, have now been uh, uploaded online. You can even hear street cries of uh, the vendor, the street vendors in the South. Um, so what was an arduous process that required me to get a lot of education and to travel uh, around the South um, to get firsthand knowledge, you can now get on the internet. And I think that's why it's changed so much. I wanted to talk about the importance of unlicensed taverns in African-American culture. Where, where we're from in Mississippi, you know, we're very familiar with juke joints. In fact, on our show, sometimes Java plays, we play a little Milton song about having a juke joint in my house because the juke joint wasn't just a separate place, but it was a creation of an atmosphere that you could also open your house and have a juke joint. And of course, all these were unlicensed. And reading in your book that that, that is a cultural phenomenon in African-American culture, that, that there were all these places, but they were not licensed. And a lot of the history of, of the cocktail came through these places. Yes, and you know, it's not only the juke joint or the gathering spot that is unlicensed. African Americans were forbidden to even enter into establishments that served white people. So these Jim Crow uh, segregationist laws across the South primarily um, lead to the creation of clandestine experiences and spaces that African-Americans can occupy. Um, and that can be traced all the way back to enslavement when they had time free to themselves and they would gather in the woods and celebrate 
religious rituals and and all of the various other Africanisms that they brought with them, but that they were forbidden to demonstrate in a public way uh, or the you know risk their lives. So they could hide out in the woods, and I describe in Jubilee um, how the cakewalk. Um, is an outgrowth of that because they would go into the woods and make fun of the planter class and its elaborate balls and the strutting around of that in the house. And they would make a cake to the extent that they could. And there's a delightful story about coconut cake uh, tied to the cakewalk. But as it relates to the juke joint, um, you may uh, be familiar with Mississippi author Kansas, uh, Kathy Starr. Oh, yes. In fact, I and, wrote her name down on the first page of my notes. I was going to ask if you had her cookbook. I do have her cookbook. And, um, you, you know, you might recall that first year, second year of SFA when Kathy served sweet potato pies to everyone. Yep. And um, it was a delight to meet her. Um, but she describes what you just um, explained uh, in terms of what a Jew joint is, that these were places that also gave women a sense of independent financial independence because they could cook and make favorite drinks or um, dishes. And then they could also uh, put together moonshine and bathtub gin and various other, you know, um, illicit beverages during prohibition and give people a place to let their hair down. Unfortunately, um, at the same time they're doing that, they're being portrayed negatively um, in the broader community. And I think that's partially what drives uh, drinking underground specifically. But Kathy gives us a lovely story of her grandmother's cafe, which she called it. She did not call it a juke joint per se. She does talk about the music on the juke box and the, we learn about the etymology of the term juke that, and in itself that means, uh, in Gullah language, that means um, something corrupt, something mm -hmm. bad. Um, and so these spaces, there's a dual message associated with all things black food. And that's why I called the Jemima code, the code. Um, because Americans have had a love-hate relationship with its black community and food and beverage. And, you know, another code, I guess, was the quilting code that is uh, we're all learning more and more about that the enslaved uh, people would put messages and uh, greetings and history into the quilts. And, of course, that's a, another, in my view, a code. I wonder what you think about that. Oh, there are lots of codes embedded in our community. I, I know, obviously, we often talk about Harriet Tubman, but she wasn't the only one who um, was instrumental in taking information from inside of the, the planter's house and translating it out into the people in the fields. And those quilts, um, drum beats, there were all kinds of ways that the Africans had their mannerisms and ways that they could communicate that the broader community just assumed they were either ignorant or, um, you know, lazy. Like there were all kinds of negative portrayals um, that didn't take into account that people were actually 
um, communicating and being productive and being smart. But I definitely do not want to leave anyone with the impression that that means that this was a good time and a great period in history, as is being misrepresented now uh, in, you know, one state or another, uh, claiming that because people were resilient and managed to persevere and bring their uh, ways with them and maintain them during a barbaric situation, that does not make it good. But it does mean that our, our children should be told a different story than just um, you didn't, your, your people didn't ever contribute to America. And then why we wonder why they are apathetic. It's because they've bought in to the messaging. It's tragic. You're listening to Deep South Dining. I'm Java Chapman. Now let's take a pause of the conversation as our guest today is Tony Tipton Martin. In late 2023, she released her latest book, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, Cocktails from Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. We'll have more with her, Malcolm White, Carol Palmer, and myself after the break. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. You're listening to Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman. And now let's return to our conversation with Tony Tipton Martin about her latest cookbook, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, Cocktails from Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. I wanted to pivot to talk about strawberry wine. And, you know, when when I read this recipe, you know, I thought about muscadine wine because where we live, you know, people go in the fields, I mean, into the vineyards and pick muscadines and, and do this. You can do it with any type of berry or fruit and that seems a real uh, cultural tradition that goes on not just in the south yes and what you've described is the another one of those ways that african-american cooks demonstrated their understanding of their region that they may have come here or been in a particular part of the country and as they moved about and or were moved about, um, they took that competency with them. And so a practice like making palm wine in West Africa becomes a habit of making muscadine wine in the deep south. And then in the north, you make strawberry wine. Uh, You can make it in the south too with wild strawberries, but um, You know, I I mention it in this book to talk about the universality of strawberries. Muscadines are very hard to get outside of the South, and they're very unique, as you know, um, different kind of grapes. So I didn't want to give offer a substitute for it. 
Um, and but it also delighted me in being able to um, share Emily Maggot's Muscadine wine recipe um, as she published it, rather than adapting it as I do for so many of the other recipes, because I had the blessing of being able to spend some time with her before she passed away. And Emily Maggot is the matriarch of Edisto Island in the Carolina Low Country. Um, and I had been hearing about her for years, um, hearing about a woman who had this expertise and, um, but nobody quite knew who she was outside of the community. And that was a closed community. So if you didn't know who she was on the ground, you just would have no way to get that information. But I eventually was able to meet with her and I loved her, but, um, so strawberry wine was an amazing um, substitute to be able to provide a recipe for the average person to be able to follow. And it was also such a delight to tell the story of the ways that that's, that um, fermentation knowledge and process was passed on through generations. Um, that, you know, I think it was Melinda Russell who, you know, says to strain it, strain the mixture when it stops singing. <laughs> It's just such a delightful, Words to live by. <laughs> just delightful uh, turn of the phrase, except it's not very practical if you're a food editor <laughs> and a food writer. So I, of course, had to know exactly what she meant. So I've got a batch of it um, finishing in the back of my pantry closet. Um, I started it several times uh, in the, while I was working on this book. Um, but I was also traveling back and forth to Boston to my office. And that meant if it was time to be strained or stirred, maybe I wasn't home. Maybe my husband helped me with it. Maybe there was a few little flecks of um, pulp that, you know, residual that did, made it through the cheesecloth. And if there is the slightest um, residue uh, and your syrup is not clear, then it will go beyond the fermented wine state and it'll just become um, a very stinky <laughs> product. So I actually have two jars, one that I left some of the uh, residue in so that I could see the outcome um, as an experiment. And then I have a pristine clear jar and they've been maturing together in a uh tub a, a rubber tub so they're in glass jars and then the, the the jars are in a tub because i wanted to make sure that they stayed you know the right temperature they're in the dark no little ants or anything would get into them um and that strawberry wine is almost a year old now and just about ready to be poured mm. this is downright inspirational Malcolm. absolutely i mean on where i live we have possum grapes we have muscadines. We have scuppernong. I believe I should start you, you fermenting. You need to get busy brewing I and need, fermenting. You got, should. Got to and ferment. You, I'm sure, have a recipe book collection, and you will look back and see that these folks said, you take your berries and you cover them with sugar. Right. Or your grapes. Always. And they understood the ratio. But nowhere do they tell you what that is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So how much sugar is enough unless you have an ancestor that can say, oh, well, yes, it, you know, you, you put it on to cover uh, the fruit. Well, Tony, we have, have loved this book. We, Malcolm and Java and I have each had one for the past couple of weeks and had so much fun with it. And I thought Jubilee was my all-time favorite, but I don't know. 
<laughs> I tell you, uh, Judy, not supposed to have favorite I children. I know. I know you're not supposed to have. But you know, although we didn't have you, we talked a lot about Jubilee over the past couple of years, and you know, congratulations on that too. And I think Java, you're still hiding my copy of the Jemima Code from a couple of years ago. What copy? <laughs> I gave that back to you. So we we have closely followed your career. We announced on our radio show when you were awarded the job at where where you earned the job at Cook's Country, and you know it was quite uh, you know quite a a news feature in the cooking world. So we followed you with great interest and are so grateful for you being on our show today. Well, thank you. It's been a delight. And I want to leave you with um, a clear understanding of what's happening in those head notes because it relates to what you're talking about. I want everyone, listeners, viewers, readers, home cooks, chefs, restaurateurs, everyone that touches these recipes to adapt them and change them according to their tastes because mm-hmm. that's what recipes and recipe exchanges have always been. Appropriation is another thing, and it involves the financial gain of some, by taking someone else's property. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the exchange of something we all really love. And so if you take one of my recipes and you decide to make uh, scuppernog wine instead of muscadine wine or instead of strawberry wine, I don't need the credit for that. Uh, I mean, you can say you read it in Juke Joints, but what I'd rather that you say is that it's an adaptation of Emily Meggett's recipe and that we remember Emily Meggett. Again, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous, and we have in, enjoyed very much having you on the show. So thank you for this new thank book, you. Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs and Juice. It is a beautiful book, and I would, and, and, and departing here, I wonder if you'd say a word about the photographer, uh, Brittany Uh, Connerly, It's just gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. And what I really love is, uh, as I said in Jubilee, we're all free now from the encumbrances and the stereotypes. And that means that these young women who photograph my books are free to immerse themselves in the culture as they view it. So I am not on set with them. I was not on set with her and I was not on set with Jarrell for Jubilee. Hmm. And that is by design so that they... They might, if you ask them, they might say, well, it's a lot of pressure (laughs) trying to live up to whatever's in her imagination. But I don't think so. I think that they grow the same affection for these cooks and their products and their um, abilities. And they want to deliver that through their specific um, expertise. And it comes through in their photography. The love that I have for the authors is clearly um, evident in the viewfinder of the photographers. For more information on Tony Tipton Martin and all of her cookbooks, including the award-winning books, Jubilee and Jemima Codes. Also, her latest, Juke Joints, Jazz Clubs, and Juice, Cocktails from Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. You can visit her website, TonyTiptonMartin.com. Deep South Dining is a production of MPB Think Radio and is funded by the generous contributions from listeners like you. Our show was produced by yours truly, Java Chapman, with special editing by intern Miriam Howard. For our hosts, Malcolm White, Carol Palmer, and our guest, Tony Tipton Martin, I'm Java Chapman. Stay tuned for Now You're Talking with Marsha Ramsey at 10 and Southern Remedy at 11. And join us next Monday for more Deep South Dining 
Heard only on MPB Think Radio.